The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. This morning's sermon text comes from Psalm 47. Psalm 47. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Good morning. It's good to be together as we now look at Psalm 47. Last week... I preached from Psalm 46, and Psalm 46.10 said, Be still and know that I am God. And in the stillness, Psalm 47 now tells us how we are to respond to God's greatness. So why don't you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help. Father in heaven, be exalted in the preaching of your word this morning. Be exalted in my heart and in the hearts of every listener, both here in this room and online. Lord, get glory for yourself this morning by enlivening our hearts and opening our eyes so that we would see more of you this morning. Do that for our joy in Christ, we pray. Amen. We are all created to worship. I think that's an uncontroversial statement. We are all created to worship. We all worship something. Everyone worships something. Some people worship God or various gods, and others worship pleasure or money or nature or thrilling experiences. Still others worship people. Sports heroes or politicians or rock stars or celebrities. We all worship something. In just several weeks, just 12 miles from here, there will be gathered 66,000 people in U.S. Bank Stadium week after week, and they will clap their hands. They will raise their voices in shouts of gladness, or in the case of the Vikings, perhaps in agony. High-five complete strangers, and they will sing in unison their fight song after every touchdown. It's quite the sight of worship. Imagine if the Vikings were actually good, what the worship would actually be like, like the Packers or something, right? I know, I know. Not all, not all who who watch the Vikings, are worshiping them. You, you can just enjoy the team and enjoy sports. And yet there are certainly some who gather there and they find an unusual sense of meaning and significance and joy in what their team can accomplish. 
And this worship is not limited to sports. It's in the arts, it's in entertainment and technology and politics. It's everywhere. We are all wired and created by God to worship something. We, we love to have our hearts stirred up in awe of something. And, and the question is not, will we be worshipers? The question is, what will we worship? What will stir our hearts? What will take our affections? What will stir us up so that we love whatever it is that we're doing? It's interesting to me that I've pondered this this week. If we had three-hour worship services, I think the attendance would go down a lot because it would be too long for many of us. We would say, I can't do that, but that's the average length of a baseball game or a Broadway musical or, or whatever it is. Or your favorite live band performing in person. And so why is that? Why would we sit through a three-hour baseball game or musical on Broadway, Wicked or whatever else, and, and, and yet if church was three hours, my guess is we would only need one service because many of these seats perhaps would be empty. And I think there's several reasons, but at least one of them is that our hearts are defective in how we think about God. Our affections for God are small and shallow. We have a weak love. This is what C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory writes. You, You have probably heard this quote. Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. We are far too easily pleased. And so many of us would rather find little pleasures, little spikes of our dopamine, scrolling social media, rather than plumb the depths of God's word, which have pleasures hidden in them forevermore. We spend much more time doing the simple things, the easy things, rather than the meaningful things. There's a line from the Valley of Vision, this collection of Puritan prayers that I go back to time and time again. If you've never read them, I would commend them to you. But there's one, of, one line in one of the prayers that goes like this. It's the prayer of a minister, and he's praying, and he says, Help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way. Or bear a broken testimony to so worthy a redeemer. Or to be harsh in treating of Christ's death, its design and end from lack of warmth and fervency. That resonates with my heart every single time I step into this pulpit. Help me not to treat excellent matter in a defective way. Fear and trembling ought to accompany every preacher as they step into every pulpit. And in the same way, I would say... Every listener of God's word should be ready and with fear and trembling to receive God's word. Because we are handling and listening to and receiving the inspired, inerrant, life-giving word of God. And so, as we come to Psalm 47, it's a glorious call to praise God. And all week... I have been praying and asking God that he would lift our collective affections to be in line and in accord with what's revealed here in Psalm 47. And yet I feel my deep insufficiency at every level. I I, I read Psalm 47 and I think there, there are times when my affections rise that high, but where I live normally is just not there. 
And I wonder if that's true for us this morning. We read Psalms like Psalm 47 says, I remember a time when I felt that way, when I was just clapping, so excited and shouting. And yet where I generally live is kind of down here. We love him, we worship him, we praise him. But I know even this morning, many of us are wrestling with discouragement and despondency and indifference and perhaps even you're lukewarm. And that's okay because you're in the right place. Psalm 47 is written for the church to give us language when we're there to say, we want you to see the beauties and the glories of Christ once again. Uh, Again, remember, the Psalms are to give us language when we lack the language ourselves to lift our praises to God. So the main point of Psalm 47 is very straightforward. We're going to just see it in verses 1, 6, and 7. The the main point of Psalm 47 is sing praises to the king. Look at verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. And then again he says, shout to God with loud songs of joy. And then look down in verse 7. He says, sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. And then verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. So we get Seven imperatives, seven commands to worship God, to sing praises to God. So the main point is sing praises to the king. And the question for us this morning that we want to answer is why should we sing praise to God, our king? Why are we going to sing praises? If the command comes seven different times, sing praises, clap, shout, sing praises. The question is why? I think it's a little bit like this. Very often, we, we see God through a, a, a dim glass, a glass dimly, right? After a long road trip, you've been driving for hours and hours, and your windshield is just covered with bug guts, right? And, and so you need to stop at the gas station and get the squeegee, and you need to squeegee it off so that you can see more clearly again. And I think Psalm 47 is like that. Just glowing through life, we just get bug guts on our windshield, and our view of God diminishes at times because we're so, we see our suffering so acutely, and we see God at times so dimly, and Psalm 47 just wants to squeegee the windshield of our view, so that we would see God afresh. He says, would you get a glimpse of the glory and of the majesty of God this morning? And my aim is that we would be awakened to the wonder of our God. So just a few more uh, contextual notes before we jump right in. So Psalm 47 is what we call an enthronement psalm. Uh, drawing on language and images of how Israel might coronate a king, but applying them to God. Other enthronement psalms would be Psalm 93, and then Psalm 96 to Psalm 99. And in our context, it would be like all the pomp and circumstance with the inauguration of a new president. And so the psalmist is urging all peoples to sing praises. And the question then for us is, why should we sing praises to God our King. And there's three main reasons here in Psalm 47. The first is that God is the conquering King. God is the conquering King. So we saw in verse 1 this call to clap and shout. And so think of an invitation to celebrate with exuberance. This is not the polite, you know, golf clap 
or, or the, the clap of parents that see kids do something uh, that's a good try but not particularly impressive, you know. Um, but but it's, th- think of sort of the, the game-winning grand slam or, or game-winning touchdown or, or, or whatever it might be, right? This is, this is the vigorous clapping and shouting of someone who can't help themselves. And then look at verse 2. He says, for, because he's giving us the reason now for why we are to clap and to shout. He says, for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. God is a great king over all the earth. Now, he's reminding us that God is the Lord most high. This is a phrase that's used throughout the Bible to differentiate God from all the other gods that all the other peoples worshipped. Egypt had their gods, and the Canaanites had their god, and Elijah had to have a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and there are all these different gods that all these people are trusting in, and the Bible continually reminds us, don't forget That Yahweh is the Lord most high. And the reason is because he has conquered all other rival gods. He is to be feared, which means he's awe-inspiring or fearsome or formidable. And he gives us why he ought to be feared in verses 3 and 4. Look there with me. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. And then the psalmist gives us the Selah there so that we might pause and ponder God's greatness. So God is the most high God. He is to be feared. Why? Because he is a conquering king. He's subdued all the other people's among the nations. This refers back to both the exodus as well as the dispossessing of all the nations that were in the promised land. God has fought on the side of his people and conquered all of these nations. It says here that the heritage, he's given us his heritage, and I think that in heritage is the promised land. And then he says this phrase, the pride of Jacob. He's not referring to human pride here, but rather this is a metaphorical description of Israel's land. It's like we would say the pride of Minnesota is the North Shore of Lake Superior. So to say the pride of Jacob would be the land of Israel, the, the mountainous region perhaps between the Negeb to Galilee. And so God has given Israel its land, It's pride, it's inheritance, it's heritage, because God is a conquering king. So we're to think back to the walls of Jericho falling down and all that God did in the exodus and in the taking of the promised land. God is to be feared. He is the great king. So why should we praise God? Because God is the conquering king most high. What we ought to do whenever we pick up the Bible, is whenever we read the Old Testament, it's not just stories. It's not just interesting stories. They reveal God's power and his faithfulness to cause his promises to come to pass. So every time you read from the Old Testament, it's to awaken your heart to see the power and the majesty and the glory of God. He's a conquering king that leads his people out to battle. 
This is why it was such an insult for Israel to say, we don't want God as our king. We want a human king to lead us because God had been leading them. And on this side of the cross, at this moment in salvation history, we know that it's not just God, the Father Almighty, who rules as a conquering king, but it's Jesus who is the king of kings now. The wise men asked Herod when Jesus was born, they said, where can we find who? The king of the Jews. Or before Pilate, he questioned Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, you have said so. So our praise of God intensifies when we see that not only is God the father, the conquering king, but now Jesus has come in the flesh. And he is the king of kings. But he doesn't just conquer through judgment. But Jesus conquers wayward hearts, hard hearts, resistant hearts through his sacrificial love, through his sacrificial death, through his amazing grace. God woos to himself through Jesus a people for his own possession. God is displaying his awe-inspiring love and sacrifice. So that on this side of the cross, not only do we have a conquering king who rules and reigns, but we have Jesus, king of kings, who has come in the flesh. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So why should we shout? Why should we clap? Why should we sing praises? Because we have King Jesus. He has conquered our hearts of flesh, conquered our hearts of stone by replacing them with hearts of flesh, putting his spirit within us so that we might walk in his ways. The second, second thing, second reason is that God is the enthroned king. Verse 5 says, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. And then in verse 6 and 7, it continually says, sing praises, sing praises. So the, the language of verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, kind of harkens back to 2 Samuel 6.15, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So that reads, 2 Samuel 6.15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so, in a sense, the people are celebrating that God, in the ark of the covenant, is going up to his earthly throne in the temple in Jerusalem. But where it says God has gone up with a shout suggests the coronation of a king, which is very similar to what we see in passages like 1 Kings 1, 39 to 40. It says this, There Zadok, the priest, took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split. By their noise. So the picture here is the coronation of a king. And, and so what verse 5, I think, is showing us that God not only goes up to his throne, he's gone up with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet. We, we see similar language in Thessalonians as well, that God is ascending to his heavenly throne as king. God is the enthroned king. So 
the question might be, why is this a big deal? Why does this matter? Isn't God always seated on his throne? Isn't he always king? Hasn't he always been God? And the answer is yes, God has always been God. God is always seated on his throne. And yet we live life in time and space. And so for the Israelites, God has always been on the throne, even while they were in in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. But when they were brought out of slavery by God, they don't say, well, God's always been on his throne. We shouldn't celebrate this. What what do they do? They celebrate. They, They shout. They clap. God has delivered us in this particular moment. There are moments when God's rule and reign in heaven, we get greater glimpse of it, greater glimpses of it on earth. It kind of comes down and we see that God is seated on his throne, that he displays his goodness and power. So not only is God king, not only is God the enthroned king, but now on this side of heaven, Jesus is the enthroned king. To fulfill this vision of the enthroned king, God sent Jesus to earth to die a death for sinners, to rise again. And then he ascends to heaven and is now seated at the throne of God. So he came to earth to be the lamb of God, ascends to heaven as king, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews twelve two. And so this is why Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, that Christ is at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the idea here is that God the Father is the enthroned king and Jesus is his co-regent. He has ascended to heaven, sits on the throne with his father. Rules and reigns with him, which is why in Revelation it speaks of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Revelation 22, 3. So why is this significant for us? Why should we sing praises to God? The reason for us is because we are raised with Christ and we're royalty with Christ. We are his children. Let me illustrate it like this. When I was a young boy... Uh, I had some cousins. I had a, a cousin that was getting married in Vancouver, uh, Canada. And so we went to the wedding, but I had never met this cousin before because just for whatever reason, we didn't travel up there very much. And so we're meeting them for the very first time at their wedding. And so the wedding happens and now they're taking the family pictures afterwards and they usually gather all the extended family. And so, you know, all the extended family from the bride side. And so my parents go up and they say, hey, you guys are come too. And we're like, okay. And so we go up and she looks over at the bride and says, who are you guys? And we're like, surprise, we're your cousins. Never met you before. And, and, And that was a really awkward interaction. And that's not the way it's going to be when we get to heaven. When Jesus is seated on his throne and you say, surprise, never met me before. But instead, we will be intimately known and loved by the most high king. You couldn't get your phone call answered by the White House. And yet you have a direct 
line, not just a direct line. You know the king of kings who is seated on his throne. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because God, the father, is the enthroned king. His son, Jesus, is the enthroned king as well. They rule and they reign and we are his children. And so when we pray, when we read his word, when we worship him, he hears our praises. His smile is upon us. His face is turned towards us. The ruler of the nations and the one who is seated on the throne in the heavens is on our side this morning. Some of us are facing calamities. And you have a king who has all power, all authority at his disposal. And he's on your side. The third reason, we not only have a conquering king, not only do we have an enthroned king, but we have a universal king. God is the universal king. Look at verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So notice... That it says God reigns over the nations. Look back in verse 1. The call is not just for Israel or for Jacob to worship God. The call is for all peoples to worship God. In verse 7, it says God is king of what? All the earth. God is over the entire world. He's not some small local celebrity with a little sponsorship deal with the, the Chevy dealer right? He's an internationally known figure, globally acclaimed. He deserves worship from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. Let me just pause there. Very often, you know, we quote that from Revelation, that God will gather some from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. But it's really a, a remarkable, stunning statement, isn't it? There will not be any people any languages, any tribes that are not represented in that final day. Every single one, there will be some there worshiping God because he's not a small local deity. He is the ruler of all the earth. It shows and reveals his praiseworthiness. Now, verse 9 has a few unusual phrases. It says, the princes of the people... And the shields of the earth belong to God. What does that mean? Well, shields of the earth is a figurative expression of the rulers or the powerful people on the earth. This is paralleled with the princes of the peoples. So it's a type of speech, uh, metonymy, that's fairly common. We might say that the White House issued an executive order. It doesn't mean that big building in D.C., but we mean the president who lives within the house, right? Or, or we might say the government possesses the sword. It doesn't mean the government literally has a sword, but they possess the authority to punish wrongdoers. And so in this same way, those that hold the shields are the people. And God says all of those people, the powerful people, the princes of the people, the rulers of the people, the, the warriors that hold the shields that are going out to battle, they all belong to God Almighty. God is a universal king. All will come and worship him. 
There will be none who are unaccounted for. Now, don't mistake in God being a universal king with universalism, which is uh, a wrong theology that teaches that everyone will be saved regardless of what they believe. The scriptures do not support that belief. But it does support the belief that there will be some from every tribe and every language and every tongue and every nation gathered before God Almighty. And the reason we should shout and clap and sing praises is because all the world will come in that final day and they will sing praises to God because he is that great. Not just some small local deity. And the surprise comes in verse 9 in this passage. The princes of the people gather as the very people of the God of Abraham. And so, what this is saying is that all the peoples of the earth will become the people of the God of Abraham. God is grafting in the Gentiles into the living vine of Jesus so that they become children of God. You remember Genesis 12? When God made a promise to Abraham, what did he say? Through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. And we think, but but you're only working through Israel up to that point until Jesus comes into the earth. And there's Gentiles along the way that are ushered in. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then he says in verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Israel's witness, all of the nations, all of the families of the earth will be blessed through ultimately Jesus. The primary way he grafts in all of the Gentiles into the living vine which is why in Galatians 3, 7, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. By faith, you'll come. And in that final day, all will worship. And so even now, God is drawing all peoples to himself. In a world full of division and polarization and fractures, there will be some from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. God's missionary heart is on display in Psalm 47 to draw people to himself. So, Psalm 47 is a call to sing praises to God with exuberance. And the three reasons he gives us is that God is a conquering king. Look at how he has worked in the past and look how he is working right now in and through Jesus into the future, conquering wayward hearts through his love and sacrifice. And not only is he a conquering king, but he is the enthroned king. He is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning right now. And even if our world feels like it's in disrepair, and, and, you know, frankly, I don't have a lot of hope in our earthly national leaders or in a new one come 2024, I have have very little hope in, in that. And yet we have a king who possesses all power, who is seated on his throne, who has not lost control for one iota. Not one second has God said, oops, 
Drop the ball on that one. God is ruling and reigning from on high. And not only is he ruling and reigning, but we have access to the King of Kings, the enthroned King Jesus. And he's a universal king. He's drawing all people to himself. And so the missionary task, the missionary endeavor, you know, we pray for unengaged and unreached people groups, and it's so hard to reach those unengaged, unreached people groups. And yet God says it will happen, guaranteed. You can take that to the bank. Every single tribe, language, tongue, nation will be accounted for on that final day. So, some who are gathered with us this morning hear the call. It's a command, seven imperatives to sing praises, to shout, to clap. And there are some who are just unable to obey. You don't believe in God. You don't trust him. You don't praise him. And that call, that command just seems burdensome rather than radically liberating. It's a command to enjoy all that is truly enjoyable, delightful, to know your purpose, to experience unspeakable peace. Christianity doesn't offer us an easy life, but it offers us a life full of meaning based upon truth that can be observed and experienced in our lives. And so for those who are not trusting in Jesus this morning, our invitation to you is to come and repent. The pathway to awakened hearts, to see Jesus as he is, to see God as he is, is repentance. Repenting of your sin and your self-sufficiency. And for so many of us, who who might harden our hearts. It's pride that stands in the way because I know what's good for me. I want to be praised instead. I know what's going to be good. And instead, we're asking you to come and repent and surrender to Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. There's another group among us, those who are indifferent, who walked in lukewarm, apathetic. We feel the fickleness and the weakness of our love. The call here is to let the Spirit squeegee the window of your soul so that you might see God more clearly. He is the Lord King Most High. He has done wonderful and marvelous things for us. He rescues sinners, washes us clean. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we brought nothing to the table, He took us in His arms washed us, redeemed us, and clothed us with robes of righteousness. See it afresh to allow it to inspire awe in you once again. And there's a third category. Those who are eager to worship, who, who are eager to clap, eager to shout. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We, we can't wait for Christ to return. And this psalm calls us to worship. Because when God's people worship, Satan gets put on notice. God's people are celebrating and glorying in all that is praiseworthy. Satan gets put on notice. And then a watching world 
sees the church celebrating and singing in the midst of turmoil. And they say, what's wrong with you guys? Why are you so weird? Oh, how could you sing? You've read missionary biographies. Missionaries, when they're arrested in jail, what's their first resort? Sing. Sing praises to our king. Even in the midst of suffering and heartache and brokenness and your body being beaten. That's what the apostles did. After they were beaten, what did they do? They sing. Because that's our victory cry. We have a God who is seated on the throne. And when we sing to him, we're declaring that he rules and he reigns. He's enlivening our hearts to trust him more and more. And he is praiseworthy, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the heartache. We are all created to worship. So what will we worship this morning? Psalm 47 calls us away from the shallow pleasures that the world offers and says, come and receive all that God is for you in Christ Jesus. Plumb the depths of his word and let him enliven your heart. Are you depressed? And perhaps I don't want to minimize medication or or any of those things or anxiety or if you have clinical issues, but far too many of us spend too little time in this and we doom scroll social media and our hearts go more and more drawn astray, worrying about the world that is ahead of us when Jesus is still seated on his throne. God has not, not for a moment, lost control. Psalm 47 says, sing that loud and clear for a watching world to put Satan on notice and to encourage one another. Encourage each other with these words. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I feel the deep and profound insufficiency of my own affections even now and yet we pray not in our own strength not to us but to you get glory so by the power of your spirit enliven our hearts enliven our affections so that we would sing even now in praise of the god who is most worthy of our praise most worthy of all of our affections Draw our affections high so that we might see you more clearly, delight in you more fully, and that you would be exalted in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.